Well, what a perfect song to lead us back into the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, I am so happy to be able to tell you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. It's been a while uh, since we were here uh, in John chapter 16. And um, I appreciate your patience as we've been going through a lot of different transitions in the life of our church and uh, been kind of all over the place when it comes to the messages that I've been preaching. But uh, I've been chomping at the bit to get back here uh, and to pick up where we left off in John chapter 16 and continue our study uh, through this great gospel. And uh, we started this uh, study a a couple years ago, I guess, and we're uh, making our way. Uh, almost to the end, believe it or not. We're at least in the last week of Jesus' life, even though we've got a few more chapters to go. Uh, The last few chapters cover only just a few short days. And so um, really excited about diving back in here this morning. And uh, hopefully for those of you that are uh, newer to our church, maybe in the last few months or even just visiting today, uh, I'll do a good job of just bringing you up to speed, kind of where we've been and uh, where we're going to be heading uh, as we Uh, launch back in here to the Gospel of John. I'd like to uh, begin reading where we left off, John chapter 16, verse 16, and uh, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter this morning, and so you can just follow along in your Bibles as I read John 16, verse 16. Jesus said, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing that he's telling us? A little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? So they were saying, what is this that he says a a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberately deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full." These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father." I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father." The disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. 
These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Father, we thank you for this great gospel, this uh, good news of salvation through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that you've used this particular book of the Bible to save many souls, probably more than any other book in your word. And Lord, we know that even some have come to know Christ already through our study, and we pray for more, that more would come to genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would put their faith in Christ and and know the joy of what it means to be truly born again. And Lord, as those of us who have been born again already are exposed uh, again to our Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that we would be just filled with awe and wonder. And Lord, as we see his example of how he spoke, of how he responded, how he treated others, how he acted, Lord, that we would want to be as much like him as possible. We pray now that your spirit would grant us insight into this text, that we would be illuminated, Lord, by your spirit that you sent for that purpose, that you would lead us into all truth this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, even if you're not a sports fan, I assume that you're aware that it's March Madness time. Are you all aware of that? March Madness? Thousands of college basketball fans are intently, and I would even add intensely, following their favorite team, hoping they'll make it to the Sweet 16 and then to the Final Four and then go on to win the NCAA Division I tournament. As if that's all that life was about, right? Right now, no one knows who's going to win, and so all the coaches and, and players and fans are riding this emotional roller coaster throughout this the, the, the dramatic ups and downs of this nerve-wracking, heart-pounding annual sporting event. Coaches are frantically strategizing, players are aggressively playing, fans are nervously watching, all wondering if they'll be the ones who'll experience that elation of of storming the court and cutting down the nets to celebrate the victory. My question is, what if there was a team in this tournament who knew ahead of time that they were going to win? Can you imagine what a difference that would make and how the coaches and the players and the fans acted and reacted during the entire tournament if they knew they were going to win? I mean, no matter what happened, whether they were winning or losing, whether whether it was a blowout or a nail-biter, rather than the coach anxiously pacing the side, shouting plays from the bench, or the players wildly running around on the court with butterflies in their stomachs, and the fans sitting on the edge of their seats with knots in their stomachs, and they would all be completely calm and confident and carefree throughout the entire tournament. Even when things were going their way and it looked like they were going to lose, they would be at perfect peace and remain happy the entire time. They would just be relaxing and rejoicing. They would just be cheering the whole time. And no matter what was going on, even if they were losing, they'd be cheering. And they would be laid back. They would be relaxed. They wouldn't be anxious. They wouldn't be 
freaking out or stressed out. Why? Because they knew no matter what happened, they were going to win. Well, as Christians, we need to realize that based on what Christ said here in this passage, that we're going to win. We're going to win the victory over sin and death and hell and Satan. And because we know that we win, that should affect the way we act and react during the roller coaster ride that we call life on planet Earth, especially when things aren't going our way. I mean, let's be honest here. Life is filled with trials and, and, and tribulations and problems and difficulties and, and, and pain and sorrow from, uh, from an unexpected rock, rock chip in your windshield to an unexpected tumor in your brain. Stuff happens. We all experience troubling times that cause us to be scared, depressed, confused, whether it's marital strife or family divisions or chronic illness or or financial stress, or maybe some kind of religious persecution. But no matter what happens to us, knowing that we are more than conquerors in Christ, we should all remain completely calm, confident, and carefree throughout our entire lives. Even when things don't go our way, we should be at perfect peace and remain happy the entire time. Nothing should ever rob or steal or take away our joy in Christ. Sound too good to be true? That's the comforting and encouraging message that Jesus shared with his disciples in in, in the last words that he spoke to them before he died. And we need to to remember here in John 16 that that Jesus was just hours... um, away from being arrested and and tried and and beaten and and crucified, and he had privately cloistered himself away with his 12 disciples in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. And John is the only one of the four gospel writers who provided a detailed record of this final interchange between Jesus and the 12, which we know today as the upper room discourse. And the main purpose of Jesus' instruction here in the upper room Uh, basically chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, uh, the main purpose of that instruction was to prepare his disciples for what was about to happen. And he revealed to them that in a little while, he was going to leave them for a little while. In a little while, he was going to leave them for a little while. And so, obviously, as we've just read, this not only confused the disciples... But it saddened them, it scared them, because they had grown to love him deeply and lean on him for everything, and, and, and they assumed that he was about to overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, and they were going to be kind of his, sitting at his right and left hand. And so Jesus knew the events that were about to, to go down would throw these guys for a loop, and he didn't want to, he, he wanted to, to equip them for the emotional roller coaster ride that they were about to board. They were about to get on a roller coaster that was going to go all sorts of crazy directions. And, 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 and so what he said to them in the upper room was intended to help them remain at perfect peace and remain happy through all the ups and downs that they were about to experience. 
And so Jesus' words serve to calm their nerves, to quiet their hearts, to put their minds at ease, even when things didn't turn out the way they had planned or expected, and even when it looked like they lost. And all their hopes and their dreams were dashed when Jesus was arrested and crucified and put in a grave. He wanted them to know that his departure was not the disaster that they imagined it would be. In fact, there was all sorts of blessings that would come from it, and so there was no reason for them to be anxious or sad. And if you remember back in chapter 14, uh, he began this theme of of encouragement and comfort uh, in chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says in verse 18 and 19, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you, because I live, you will live also. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then in chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So Jesus started the upper room discourse by telling the disciples that he was leaving and going back to heaven to be with the Father. And now he ended it reminding them one more time that he was about to leave. And so accordingly, Jesus returned to this theme of joy and and peace uh, to comfort and reassure the disciples uh, in light of his imminent departure. Uh, Again, look at verse 16, chapter 16, where we just read, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Verse 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And then, of course, verse 33, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have what? Peace. Well, can I just say the disciples didn't feel peaceful or joyful at that moment? Would you agree with me? And, and, and it wasn't going to get any easier in the hours and the, and the days and the weeks ahead. They would not feel like rejoicing or relaxing when literally all hell broke loose in their lives. And that's why Jesus explained to them why and how they could and should be joyful and peaceful no matter what happened in their lives. And that's what I want us to see this morning is how Jesus explained here three reasons to remain joyful and peaceful no matter what happens to us in life. Three reasons why we should remain joyful and peaceful no matter what happens to us in life. And if you know and love Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, these are are three things. The three things we're going to look at this morning, they're, they're three things that no one or nothing can ever rob or steal or take away from you. 
And therefore, no matter what's going on in your life or, or what's going on in this world around you, you can rejoice and you can relax. What are these three reasons to remain joyful? Number one, it's Christ's presence through His Spirit. Secondly, it's Christ's provision through His name. And thirdly, Christ's power through His conquest. Let's look at these three reasons uh, that Jesus lays out for us here that we should remain joyful and peaceful no matter what happens to us in life. First of all, is Christ's presence through His Spirit. Look at verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you'll not see me, and again a little while, you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while, we do not know what he's talking about. And so the disciples were confused. They couldn't figure out what in the world he meant by what he was saying. And in the same way that Jesus' words were not clear to the disciples, guess what? They're not clear to us today either. You say, what are you talking about? Well, Bible scholars debate over what Jesus meant when he said that they would not see him, but then they would see him. Um, he could have been referring to his death and resurrection, that they weren't, they weren't going to see him for a while, but then they were going to see him again when he rose from the dead. Uh, he could have been talking about his ascension and his second coming, that there's going to be a while, you're not going to see me again, and it was thinking about the further, the second coming of Christ, or he could have been referring to his ascension and his return by the Spirit through Pentecost, or at the day of Pentecost. And so a, a vital part of, of studying God's Word is, is thinking through these various options and letting God's Spirit direct you to a conclusion. And, and we know one of the basic principles of interpretation is that context is king, right? Context is king, queen, president, Everything. Dictator, okay? Context is everything. So the overall context of the Upper Room Discourse centers around Christ leaving and sending who? The Holy Spirit to take His place. And we've looked at this uh, over the last uh, several months when we were, before we took a break here. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will bring you to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, Verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then here in chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then verse 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So the overall context, uh, it, just the flow of this whole section, is clearly Christ leaving, going back to heaven, and sending the Holy Spirit to take his place. The, the immediate context, verse 10, he says, and concerning righteous, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So he's not talking about going to the grave and then coming back to life. He said, I'm talking about going to the Father and you will no longer see me. What is that a reference to? His ascension, right? Him going back to heaven. And so based on 
the context, it seems the best option is that Jesus was referring to when he would return to the Father and then reappear on the day of Pentecost through the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would reveal him to the disciples. We just read that in in, in chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, Notice verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the, Father, that, the, that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And so he said, hey, the Holy Spirit was going to basically reveal me to you. It's interesting, Paul and Peter both refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of who? Christ. Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Galatians 4, 6, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Philippians 1, 19, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And then Peter in 1 Peter 1, 11, talking about the prophets who were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So all that to say, I think that Jesus' point here was that his absence after his ascension would only be for a little while. He, he would return shortly in the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell with them permanently. Why did Jesus say in Matthew 28, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, What? I am with you always, even at the end. How was he with them always? Through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verse 1, where we uh, learn about how Jesus told them, the disciples, to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come with power, and they would go out and be uh, his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. But it's interesting, in verse 1, Uh, This is what Luke says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, I I wrote the book of Luke. I wrote the gospel of Luke. That was my first account. And it was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Jesus wasn't done. It wasn't like he finished his work and at the end of the gospel of Luke, it was done. And now it's all the Spirit's work. No, he's saying that it's continuing. The, The work of Christ will continue through the Spirit through the church age. In fact, Paul said in Romans 15, 18, when he was giving credit for his ministry, he said, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He didn't say to speak of anything except what the Spirit has accomplished through me, but what Christ has accomplished through me. And so, again, he's talking about, I believe Jesus is talking about here, Uh, his return, this little while when he comes back in the person of the Spirit and dwells with us permanently. Now look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him and said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me. Again, because Jesus is God, he could read their minds which showed them that he was all-knowing and they're going to come to grips with that at the end here uh, in verse 30, now we know that you know all things. Uh, we know that, that Christ was omniscient. 
Um, we've learned that as a, through our study of the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse 24 says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, he knew what you were thinking. He knew what you were feeling. He, he understood. Nobody had to tell him. In, in John chapter 4, in his meeting the woman at the well, this was his in, interchange with her, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This, is, this you have said truly. And so guess what? Jesus was omniscient. He knew all, all about this woman and her past. And so they knew that he was omniscient. Notice verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And obviously, I think this is a reference to, to Christ's death that would cause his enemies to rejoice. They were jumping up and down at the foot of the cross going, yeah, we just killed the wicked wet, the wick, the wicked witch is dead, right? Jesus Christ is dead. They were rejoicing, but at the same time, the disciples would be mourning and weeping, but that grief would turn to joy when he came back to life, first of all, and then came back to them in the form of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts records the coming of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, and the joy of the early church. Acts 13, 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus goes on to, to, to illustrate what he's talking about, this, this transformation from, from grief to, to joy. He says, whenever a woman, verse 21, is in labor, she is pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now, I can't think of a better illustration of how mourning can quickly be transformed in rejoicing than a mother giving birth to a child. Now, I only can speak from books I've read and uh, watching my wife go through the, the pains of labor and then the, the, the subsequent joy that she had when that little one was laid in her arms. But it's truly remarkable how fast a mother can forget the pain of labor as soon as that newborn is, is handed to her and she feels nothing but joy. And her misery instantly changes to ecstasy. You ladies are all nodding. You know what that feels like, right? You've, you've been there. You've done that. I haven't, okay? So we're trusting you on that, okay? What initially produces sorrow ultimately results in joy. The same baby that causes the pain causes the joy. It's very ironic. And so the pain and the sorrow of, of losing Jesus would be quickly forgotten when he was resurrected and they, they briefly saw him before his ascension and then later when he returned via the Holy Spirit, they would see him permanently. And again, back to chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you after a little while, same phrase, a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. Again, we see Christ right now. The world doesn't see him, but we see him, right, because he lives within us through the Holy Spirit. 
Look at verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Again, we're trying to merge these two thoughts. He was obviously talking about, hey, I'm going to die, okay, but that's not going to be the end. You're going to see me again because I'm going to rise from the dead. But I'm also, even though I rise from the dead, I'm, I'm still leaving you guys. I'm going back to the Father. And I know that's going to be a sad. You're going to grieve. And, and everybody's going to, the rest of the world's going to be like, man, we're, we're glad we got rid of that guy. Yeah, we don't see him anymore. So, man, that's a good thing. We got rid of him, right? But guess what? Your joy will return when I return in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that joy that they would experience would be not only unspeakable, we, we talk about unspeakable joy, that, that, that you can't even put it in words, right? But I think in this case, more importantly, this joy would be unstealable. If that's a word, I looked it up online, there's an unstealable bike they just invented in South America. Apparently, you can't steal the thing. It's unstealable. I was like, sweet, somebody's using that word, I'll use that word. It's unstealable. That this joy... That, that Jesus is talking about, that he's promising them, is unstealable. No one could ever take it away from them. Why? Because no one can ever take Christ away from you. That's why they can't steal your joy, because they can't steal Christ. I came across of the last words of a Korean martyr just before he was executed by some communist leaders he said this, quote, you may take away from me my life, but you can never take Christ from my heart. And so there's great joy. There's great reason to, be, to rejoice and to be at peace and to relax when you understand Christ's presence, his permanent presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit, through his Spirit. That's the first thing, the first reason why we should remain happy and, and peaceful no matter what happens in our lives. Number two is Christ's provision through his name. Christ's provision through his name. Notice verse 23, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father, I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world, and I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Again, very clearly the context is not talking about him going to death and coming back out of the ground. He's got the longer view in mind here of his ascension and his return on the day of Pentecost. In that day, he says it twice, verse 23, in that day, verse 26, in that day, Again, I think that day is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and their sorrow turned to joy and their eyes were open and they understood far more about Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection uh, after he was gone than they ever did while he was here with them. And we know that during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and, and ascension, surely the disciples had lots of questions, but once he ascended back to heaven, uh, they couldn't ask him anything because he wasn't there, he was no longer present. And instead, he told them that they would ask who? They would ask the Father. 
They would ask the Father in His name. See, up to this point, the disciples had expressed their needs to Jesus, and He would intercede for them to the Father, and all their needs would be met. But after Jesus left, what He's saying here is that they would be able to go directly to the Father and present their request to Him and get their needs met from Him directly. And through Christ's death on the cross, we know that Jesus removed the barrier of sin that separated man from God and made it possible for us to have direct access to God. You remember when Christ hung on the cross, the, the, the veil in the temple that, that divided the, the outer court in the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And that was symbolic of, of that the, the, the presence of God had been opened through the death of Christ. Now we could have access to the Father. Now, don't think that means that just anyone can gain access to God's presence whenever they want. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus. You must come in Jesus' name. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You must believe that Jesus is God's Son who came into the world to live the life that you should have lived and who died the death that you should have died so that you could be reconciled to God. And everyone who repents of their sin and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior can boldly and confidently approach God's throne because now they have a mediator, they have an intercessor, they have an advocate seated at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25 talk about the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.1 talks about how we have an advocate with the Father. Of course, the book of Hebrews calls him the great high priest who intercedes, who mediates between us and God. But if you don't know Jesus personally, if you don't personally know Jesus and you don't sincerely love Jesus, then guess what? You're not welcome in God's presence. You come into God's presence, he's like, who are you? Do I know you? It'd be like me going to, to, to the White House and, and, and showing up at the, at the guard gate, right, and, and saying, hey, I'm here to see President Obama. And I know you're thinking, why would you actually want to even go there to see him? But just for the sake of argument, okay, I'm there knocking on the, right, I'm, I'm saying, hey, I'm here to see President Obama. And they're like, who are you? Well, I'm Ken Ramey. They were like, well, who, who's that? Does the president know? Do you know the president? Well, no, I don't know him. Does, does, he, does he know you? No, he doesn't know me. They're like, sorry, pal. You're not coming in. But if I said, hey, you know what? I'm best friends with his kid, and we know each other, right? <laughs> not that I would be best friends with those girls, right? But just say I was, right? But if I was best friends with one of his kids... I'm like, yeah, we, go, we went to school together. We went to college together. And, and, and so, yeah, I've, I've hung out in their backyard. I've had barbecues. I've swum in the, in the backyard pool with them, and we've gone on vacation, right? That I, I actually have a relationship. I actually know, right, his kids. There's an opportunity there that I could be let in. Why? Because we have a relationship. I, I know someone in the family, if you will. See, God loves those who love his son. Do you get that? I didn't say that. That's what, that's what Jesus said. 
Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I came forth from the Father. So God loves those who love his Son and who mention his name when they come before him. I'm coming in, not my own name, who are you? No, I'm coming in Jesus' name. And when God hears the, God the Father hears the name Jesus, it, 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 if you will, his ears perk up. He's like, oh, I recognize that. In, in some ways you could say that's the, that's the password into the presence of God is the name of Jesus. Well, we know from our previous study here that praying to the Father in Jesus' name is one of the themes of the Upper Room Discourse. Look back at chapter 14. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, Verse 26 of chapter 14, uh, he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, uh, verse 16 He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So there's a reason here why when we pray, we say in Jesus' name, amen. And sometimes we say it so often, we don't think about, well, what are we actually saying when we, when we say Jesus' name? Is it some little magical formula, kind of like, like rubbing the genie you know, bottle, and if we just do it just right, we say in Jesus' name, we tack that on at the end of our prayers, then, then we're good to go? No, when we say in Jesus' name, amen, or we come to you, God, in Jesus' name, we're acknowledging that it is only on the basis of Christ's merit on the cross on our behalf, that we can approach God the Father in the first place. That it's in Jesus' name, that it's through His merit, on the basis of His merit alone, nothing that we can bring, nothing that we could do to gain access to the Father. Furthermore, we're acknowledging Christ's lordship over our lives. That we know Him, that we love Him. And we're asking for whatever would honor and glorify Him the most and and be most consistent with His will. That's what we mean when we say in Jesus' name. And so, again, what's our point here? Having all of our needs met by God through answered prayers in Jesus' name, the fact that we have direct access to the God of the universe to present our request to Him at any time, any place, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, is that not good reason to be joyful? particularly when we consider the fact that it's reassuring to know the Father loves us. That's why He lets us come directly to Him, because He loves us. Why? Because we love Jesus. And so when you pray and you receive answered prayer, let that remind you, let God encourage you. You know what? This is an evidence of God's love for me. He's proving His love for me. And, And by the way, God always answers prayer. And so sometimes you say, well, he's not answering my prayer. He hasn't given me what I asked for. He must not love me. No, maybe he's not giving you what you asked for because he loves you. In other words, he loves you so much, he's not about to answer that dumb request. 
that selfish request, that thing that you thought would bring you happiness, that would, make, that would be the solution, and you have no clue. And he said no because he loves you. And so that should encourage our hearts. Christ's provision through his name. And then finally, the third reason that we should remain joyful and, and peaceful no matter what happens in our lives, is, is Christ's power through His conquest. Christ's power through His conquest. Look at verse 29. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you, but this, by this we believe that you came from God. Basically, they're like, oh, now you're talking. Now we get it. And so they, they claimed to finally understand what Jesus was saying and, and were convinced that he was omniscient and therefore that he had, tr- he had to be from God. He had to be God's son because, look, he knew what they were thinking without them even saying anything. He read their minds. He answered their questions. And yet, based on how Jesus responded to them, their comment, it's clear that they really didn't know all that they thought they did, and they weren't really ready to die for what they said they believed. Notice his response, verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Question mark. And you could take that a lot of different ways. Like, seriously, it, it, finally, you, 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 it took you this long to get it? Or are you sure? Are you sure you really believe what you say you believe? See, Jesus knew that in just a few hours, when the authorities came to arrest him in the garden, they would all forsake him and they would flee to their homes in fear for their lives. Notice what he says, now we know that you know all things uh, Jesus said, do you, not, do you not believe? Behold, verse 32, an hour is coming and has already come. In other words, it's going down right now for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. So we know what is about to happen, right? They go down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're there praying. While he's praying, they're sleeping. And then Judas shows up with the Jewish religious leaders and the, the soldiers, and they go to arrest Jesus. And, and what do all the disciples do? They're gone. They're, they're just all over there. They're running through the garden. They're, they're running for their lives. And they run to the home. They, they abandon Jesus. His closest followers abandon him. And yet, he says, I won't be alone because the Father would remain with me, would be with me. Now, we do know there was a time, a moment of time, when the Father did forsake his Son and left him alone. When was that? When he was on the cross. And when he who knew no sin became sin for us, and God poured out all of his wrath on him, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus was forsaken 
so that we would never be forsaken. He was left alone so that we would never have to be left alone. I love this because as, despite all that, that Jesus knew was going to, all, all that he was going to have to face in the next few hours and, and all that he knew about how the disciples were going to fail him, he ended the upper room discourse on a triumphant note. Notice verse 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. In other words, the disciples falling away wouldn't be the end of them, nor would be uh, Jesus being forsaken by the Father on the cross be the end of him. Ultimately, both him and his disciples would be victorious. And so verse 33 is the, is the summary, the climax of, of Christ's message to his disciples in the upper room. These things I've spoken to you so that you, in me, you may have what? Peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Again, the purpose of the entire upper room discourse was to help the disciples have peace in the midst of the storm that was about to break. That word peace, interesting word, one commentator says this, the word refers neither to the absence of military conflict nor to the absence of all inner turmoil. In other words, he's not talking about that there will be no wars going on uh, outside and no wars going on inside. That's not the point. It rather talks about the experience of God's upholding hand in the midst of difficulty. So right smack dab in the middle of the world war, right smack dab in the middle of the, the heart war internally, right? God will be upholding you in the midst of that. And he just leveled with them. He said, in the world you have tribulation. That's just life and trials are synonymous. You've heard it said that you're either presently um, in a trial or you're just coming out of a trial or you're about to go into a trial. <laughs> that, that's life. There's, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's problems, there's difficulties, mainly persecution because of, of, of your commitment to Christ, I think is in particular view here in Christ's mind. It, it's inevitable. Being persecuted for Christ is inevitable as long as we're living in a world that's alienated from God. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 18, remember he says, in the world, he's talking about the world here in verse 33, in the world you'll have tribulation. Last time he talked about the world is John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then in chapter 16, the, the, the more immediate context, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you as 
so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. They're going to think they're honoring God, they're serving God by killing you as a Christian. Obviously, we think of the Apostle Paul, who thought he was honoring God by rounding up all the Christians and killing them. Uh, how about all the, all, the, all the militant, right, the Islamic militants? They think they're honoring God by killing Christians. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So he's saying, hey, I've already said this, but just reminding you, in the world you will have tribulation. It's just going to happen. Anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. But, he says, what's the next phrase? Verse 33, take, what? You got that in your Bible? Take courage. Take heart. Literally, you ready for this? Cheer up. Cheer up. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Yeah, in the world you have tribulation, but cheer up. I've overcome the world. And so what he's saying is the, the, the way to endure all the problems and the difficulties and the persecution that Christians face in this world is to remember that on the cross, Christ triumphed over the entire evil world system and its rebel ruler, Satan, along with all their damning byproducts, sin, death, and hell. All conquered at the cross. Notice he says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You're like, oh, time out. He hasn't died on the cross yet. What's up with that? Why, why didn't he say, I, I will overcome, I'm about to overcome the world? Well, I think the reason why he said, I have overcome the world, because the outcome of the events that were about to occur was so secure that Jesus spoke to them as if they had already been accomplished. They're a fact. It's happened. It's a done deal. And so no matter what we may endure in life, we need to remember that we are on the winning side. And when we do, when we remember that, we'll not be controlled by fear and anxiety and panic and all these things, but the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so based on Christ's presence, Christ's provision, and Christ's power, we are overcomers no matter what we face in life. These are three reasons, beloved, why we should never live depressed, disoriented, defeated lives. How many times have you said or you've heard someone say, well, I just, man, I just can't gain the victory over this. And I just, I keep striving, I just can't gain the victory over this. Well, have you lost your mind? It says right here that the victory's already been gained. It's already been won. It's, it's not about gaining the victory, it's about claiming the victory. It's not something that you have to do. It's not trying harder and, and it's, it's claiming the victory that you have in Christ. And despite all the ups and the downs and the trials and temptations that we experience throughout our lives, we need to remember that in the end, we are going to win. We're going to win. And we sang the song right before I got up here, um, Nothing in All the World, based on Romans chapter 8. 
this great passage, verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then Paul begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Well, in light of that, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly, what? Conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, you fill in the blank, whatever you want to add to that list, go for it, you will be able, nothing, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The one cross-reference I think that was most encouraging to my heart was Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. In Christ's message to the church in Laodicea, he says this, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How cool is that? That when Paul says, back in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through Christ, in other words, Jesus wins, and so do we, what does that look like? One day, we will be able to take our seat alongside Christ in that throne, right? The vic- victoriously, we'll be victors, that's what it says. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He's going to share his throne with us. Kind of like the Olympics. You know, they have those little things you stand on. And, 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 and if you remember the 1980 Olympics, right, when, when the, the, the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians and it was like the miracle on ice, they called it. And, and so at, when they gave out the gold medal, uh, the, the captain was up there on the, on the highest pinnacle receiving the gold medal and, 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 you know, hand over the heart, the flags going up and singing the national anthem. And as soon as it was all over... What did he do? You remember? He called the rest of the team, and they all crowded up on that top uh, stage, and they, and they just kind of hugged one another, and they put their fingers up as number one. They were the victors. That's what Jesus is saying. He's going he's to welcome us up. He said, come on, you guys. It's not just me. Come on. You're overcomers with me. And so all that to say, you may be facing some sort of trial or tribulation some problem, some difficulty, some pain, some sorrow, some setback, some heartache, some mild adversity, or a major tragedy in your life right now, and it's causing you to be scared, it's causing you to be depressed, it's causing you to be confused, Jesus is saying to you today, cheer up. Cheer up. And if I might add, chill out. Cheer up. And chill out. Relax. God's got this. You're an overcomer in Christ. This is temporary, light affliction, momentary affliction that's going to lead to great glory in heaven someday. And so rejoice and relax because he's already conquered the world and whatever you're going through right now. He's already conquered it. John, who wrote the gospel, also wrote some epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, interesting, he carried on this theme of overcoming 
1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is not just to pump you up. Hey, we're all overcomers, everybody. Let's go out of here and yay, rah, rah. No, the the question is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then you ain't any kind of overcomer. You're going to fall flat on your face. You're a loser, okay? What I mean by that, not a loser in the sense that you're a loser, but listen, you're going to lose. Interesting, this is the point of the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 31. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so if I could just remind you in closing, why are we studying the Gospel of John? Why is this book in the Bible? It's so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you will live. Not just abundant life now, but eternal life in heaven. That you'll live a victorious life and have a victorious eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this this wonderful gospel. And Lord, we thank you that through Christ, we can overcome anything and everything that we face in life. Lord, thank you that for, for letting us know ahead of time, for letting us in on the secret that we win. And Lord, we, we know that should affect the way we think and the way we act, the way we talk, the way we feel, the way we respond to, to all of life's trials and troubles and tribulations and pains and tragedies. Lord, that you would grant us grace to remain joyful and peaceful that, Lord, there are some of us, including myself this morning, who need to cheer up right now because you've overcome the world and you've overcome the problem in our lives. And, Lord, there are some of us that just need to chill out and relax and be at rest and, and, and pray to you in Jesus' name. And when we do that, presenting our request to you, you promise that that peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. So I pray you deal with the fear, you deal, deal with the anxiety, you, feel, you deal with the depression that might be in hearts in this room and that we would truly honor you and honor your son Jesus Christ by thinking and, and living and, and talking and acting uh, the way we should uh, as those who are overcomers through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.